Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask that you be with us as we go through the passages for this morning. Um, we pray that you would show us Jesus and make much of him as we discuss the, the furniture in the tabernacle. Um, I pray for this group. I thank you for them. I thank you that they are hungry to learn, hungry to, um, to know Jesus better, to explain him and proclaim him more clearly and boldly than any of us do right now. We pray for your spirit to once again illuminate your word to us. We thank you that you hear our prayers. We have access to you through faith in Christ. What a gift. We pray that you would um, hear them and that you would grant us wisdom and discernment as we go through the passages this morning. In Christ's name, amen. And yes, I said passages. We are going through this. Uh, and you are today witnessing history for this class, such, such as it is. Uh, we're going to take the largest section of Scripture I think we've ever done in this class. Chapter 31 through chapter 38, verse 20. And the reason that I decided to do it this way. Yes? Just trying to get this to Laura. Oh, okay. Thank you. Sorry. 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 Um, our brief interruption. Uh, it's all good. Uh, the reason I, I wanted to do it this way is because the stuff that's in here is repetitive. It's the stuff that we've already gone over uh, from the instructions that, that God gave Moses on the mountain for what to build and how to build. And we went through each of these articles more thoroughly than we will this morning. And this is just confirming the construction of it. But in doing that, uh, I, I want us to look at some, some differences in the way it's laid out. So let's start in chapter 31. Uh, I'm going to read it. I'm sorry, did I say 31? It's uh, 37, (laughs) chapter 37, we're going to read 31 through 39 today, no, chapter 37, verse 1, yeah, verse 1, and through 38, uh, verse 20, it is a lot, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead and read it, I may read it a little faster than normal, no, I'm not, Bezalel, made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its feet, four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, 
and their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. All right, I want to begin. We're going to, we're going to break it up here rather than read the whole thing all at once. The last time we discussed the making of the tent itself, and, and this week we're going, to, we're going to look at the furniture inside the tent, and like I said, we've already discussed all this, and here we're looking at the making of these things. Um, and, and he's confirming we sections that, that the people constructed it just as God had instructed. So, when looking at this thing, when looking at the furniture in the tabernacle, there's a lot of unused space. Right? We're talking, let's see, there's an ark, there's a table, there's a lamp, there's an altar of incense, there's a, a, a bronze laver, or the wash basin, and then there's a bronze altar. And it's a big tent. There's a lot of unused space here. What makes the tabernacle a tabernacle and not just a big tent? What's significant about it? What, what is it that defines it as a place of worship, as a place to be where God dwells, and He will be with them and they will be His people? What, what is it about this? It's the furniture, right? It's what, the, what they mean, how they are positioned and where they are positioned that, that makes it distinctive from Moses' tent or Aaron's tent, right? So, he starts with, well, I need to start with recanting something. Last week, um, I, I said, he, in chapter 36, i got to get it right now, 36, 8 through 20, uh, 38, yeah, that section, that we did last week, that he was talking about Moses. Uh, I was horribly wrong. Because we see here in verse 1 of chapter 37 that he is Bezalel, right? He's the one that is attributed all the making of the furniture. And all this stuff is happening all at once. I mean, they're, they're not just, okay, we made the ark, now we move on to the table. No, we made it. It's all happening all at once. And Moses is recording it, though, in an order. Why? Why this order? Um, it starts with Bezalel, and, um, and, and it's attributing everything to him. There's still that idea of he's representing the people as, the, as they're making the furniture. There's still that representative issue there. I just called it Moses, and it was Bezalel. So I just want to clear that up in case there were some people that were going, that's not what it's saying. You know, that, that's, anyway. I, I know you did, and, and, and I... I just, want to, I just want to ease the consciences of everyone in the room. Uh, what is the first thing Moses records Bezalel building? It's the ark, right? That's the first thing he records. Again, they're all probably building it all at once. But he records the ark. What's the ark? Let's just go over that again. What was, what was it made of? Acacia wood and gold. Those are the two answers I hear. And yes, what is it about acacia wood? It's very common. What is it about gold? Very uncommon, right? Very precious, very valuable. So you have the common overlaid with the uncommon. The common overlaid with something pure, valuable. Um, they take common wood and cover it with something precious. Uh, and we went over those instructions back in Exodus 25, 1 through 22. Where is the ark to be located? In the Holy of Holies. Remember, there are three chambers. We talked about this last week. There, there's a Holy of Holies. And there's only one piece of furniture there, the ark. Then there's the holy place, and then there's the outer court. 
the tent generally is considered to be the holy of holies and the holy place with the outer court being where the, the rest of the people um, come to worship God. What's, what else is uh, significant about the ark that you recall from our discussion in chapter 25? It could not touch the ground. Uh, what, what, uh, what, was, uh, what was another feature of the ark to keep it from touching the ground? The rings and the poles. It was, and, and they were fixated to it. They weren't able to be removed. Human hand couldn't touch it. The ground couldn't touch it. It was special. It was set apart from the ground or even the touch of man. And, and what else about the ark? What, what else do you remember? What was inside of it? From, from, from what we know here. Other things are added later. Two tablets are, are mentioned here or, or within Exodus. The two tablets are, are, are there. What are the tablets? The, the, the law, the, test, the ten words, the testimony, so it was the testimony to the nature of God resided in the Ark of the Covenant, right? You have something common overlaid with something precious that testified to who God is. What's that? Christians. Yeah, fully God, fully man, showing the nature of God. There's, that's the picture that we draw from that. What was hidden in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. Christ is the Ark. In fact, he's called the Ark um, other places in, in, in Scripture. So, what is the significance about the cover of the Ark? What's going on there? What's on top? Angels, cherubim, what are they doing? They're veiling their faces and they're leaning forward. We talked about what that would reference, right? The, the leaning forward, the facing each other. What, what was that? What, did, what was the... It's called the mercy seat here. Is there something else that's referred to? I'm just going to do it. <laughs> to. Preposition, I can't stand it. It's going to be all right, though. <laughs> they're bowing. And they're, and they're, and they're worshiping. It's, a, it's, it's called the throne of God. That's considered to be his throne by the picture of the angels bowing there. It's, it's referenced elsewhere in Psalms as the throne of the mercy seat or, the, or God's throne. They're, they face one another. They're looking downwards, but their wings are raised, raised skywards. Their upraised wings symbolize that they bear his throne, and their downcast faces show that, that, that even they may not gaze upon the glory of God. What an amazing thing. <laughs> even they can't look at his glory. Uh, the noun that's used to describe the lid of the, of the ark derives from a root word that means to make atonement. The mercy seat, where atonement is given. The older uh, Greek translations um, of, of, the, of the Old Testament um, here use the word for the cover, uh, translates as, as an instrument of propitiation or place of atonement or mercy seat. And this is where we, we gathered that. This is particularly displayed on the Day of Atonement, which we will see in Leviticus 16. Much, much, much <laughs> long from here. Much long down the road. Yeah, well, we'll have to change the name again. From a, okay, so... <clears throat> there, look, there's a lot more to the Ark, obviously. Uh, we went through it very detailed uh, whenever we went over it specifically. But I just want to bring out those remind you of those kinds of things we talked about. Um, that was in the Holy of Holies. It's the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. 
and it sits behind the veil with the cherubim that we talked about last week, that, that major veil. All right, verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings on to the four corners of its legs, of its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates, its dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. What's significant about the table? And we discussed this back in chapter 25, 23 through 29. And the account here is virtually the same as what we, we went over before. What, what's significant here? Like, do they pound out sheets of gold and, like, nail it? Or do they it? Or, like, how does that work? <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would assume that it's some kind of pounding. That, that, that they just, it's like a... Do you have any... In the well, pure gold is really, really soft. So they could, I mean... I Melt it and dip it? Or you can... Well, not over. Well, yeah, you can bend it. You can you can hammer it in and, and around a mold. I'm just looking, like, like there's a picture. <coughs> I'm just thinking about how just detailed... And Oh yeah. It would be hammer and nail all of the it's very it's very detailed. Yeah, you can't touch it. Isn't that the point? How's it made? It's made with common wood again, overlaid with something precious, and it's made with poles. Again, not something that man is to touch. But they couldn't touch the table, right? But. Yes and no. I mean, it's a little, I mean, we see a little bit less than the ark here because these poles could be removed. When it was in service, obviously, you, you had to touch it to put poles on it and do things like that. But when it's being moved, it was to be respected as holy. It's not as holy, supposedly, you know, the way it's constructed as the, the ark is. It's in the holy place. But it's still deemed to be, to be holy. What's on the table? So dishes. What is this table for? It's got dishes on it. Remember the, the thing that... Yeah, did it again, four. Uh, it's got dishes on it. There are things that uh, were supposed to be on it. There's the drink offering in the flagon. And then there is something else on the plates. What, what would it be? Some, some incense, and then what else is supposed to be on there? Do you know? Bread. Not mentioned here, but we talked about it before in the previous chapter. There's to be bread on here, and it's called what? Showbread or the bread of the presence. What is that about? Say it again, about. What is that about? The bread of presence. What, what, is, what do you need? What's bread for? Communion, what, what do you do with bread? You need it to do what? You, you need it to eat? Uh, you need it and you eat it. Um, wh why do you eat it? Because you need it, right? You need it because you've got to eat it. 
You need it because you eat it, and then because you eat it. Okay. It does not record here that the bread of the presence was set before Yahweh at this point. We see that in chapter 40 when the thing is put into service, that, that the bread of the presence was placed on the table. In fact, there are 12 loaves that are, that are put out, um, arranged in two rows, and they're placed on the table. Why do you think there would be 12 loaves? For the 12 tribes of Israel. He has provision for each of the 12 tribes on the table, in the tabernacle, and eventually in the temple to represent that he provides for them, for his people, all of them. They're right, they eat it as representative for the people, but it, the symbol is there. Um, yeah, I think, it, I think that every week they were to put bread out, and at the end of the week the old bread actually went to the priest. They got weak old bread. It's kind of like the rainbow store, whatever, out on 155, the, the day old bread. Okay, yes you did. In fact, in fact it was all on my lawn. Um, what, is, what is the bread of the presence? What does it mean? In, in 1 Samuel 21.4, it calls it consecrated bread. It's set apart. It's to describe or, or to, to, to symbolize God's presence with his people and present in his provision for his people. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And, th- and this is... There's also something to the fact that the priest had to lay out 12 new loaves every Sabbath. It, it shows that this, this is an everlasting covenant of provision that God has his people on the table. Um, and their laying it out shows a pledge of their faithfulness to the covenant as well. Um, all right. So the, the table and the bread show his provision through his presence. All right. Look at verse 17. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. The three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand, Itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made its seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold, and he made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. What's with the lampstand? Yeah? On this one. But th- is there, how is this made? You, uh, hammered gold or anything else? It's pure gold. There's nothing common about this lampstand. It's all one piece. It's a, singular, it's a single, single piece. I'm going to say it eventually. It's all gold. What does it look like? Just first impression. It sounds beautiful. It's a work of art. For beauty and for glory, it says, that they made these things. What is it a picture of? What does it visually look like? Yeah. Is it the thing that's referenced by John in Revelation? Like it represents the seven churches? Well, it, it, could, it could be that. Yeah, I think there, we could, that's a safe thing to, to go. That, that, that would mean that as well. But just looking at it visually, if you were to see this in, um, I don't know, Pier 1 or whatever, what, what would it look like? 
The way it's described it sounds like a tree. Like a tree. Like a tree. And we talked about that being the, 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 the tree of life kind of idea in the Garden of Eden. Again, all of the tabernacle inside is a picture of Eden. God's presence in the garden. A reminder of what was. And you see it here with the lampstand. This tree figure being used as furniture. What, is the, what does the lampstand do? It's in the holy place. It sheds light and it's actually facing the table so that it directs light to the bread on the table. Um, all right. This is a repetition again. It's a shorter account, but the lamps are not actually lit until chapter 40, so that's why some of it's truncated. Um, it does not recount that the pattern is based on what Moses received on the mountain. That's kind of understood. Uh, it's a stylized tree that was typical of Near Eastern art, uh, and it was a metaphor for the tree of life in, in Eden. It's meant to signify the continued existence and productivity for the people of God as they dwell in his presence. He gives life to his people. He, it's an eternal covenant he has with them, uh, and, he, and he gives life to them. The word translated lampstand in the Hebrew is the word, what do you think? It's menorah. Have you ever heard of a menorah? That's, that's the Hebrew. Yeah. A menorah? Well, that's a, probably a safe bet too, yeah. Menorah is the word. It means lampstand. Uh, it also is to be made of pure gold, hammered out one solid piece, and its design includes a thick base that gradually tapers to a stalk or a stem. Um, the light coming from the lampstand is often used as a metaphor for the presence of God and the, and the favor of God, the eternal presence of God. And for, for example, Numbers 6, uh, 24 through 26, Moses blesses the people. He says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. The focus of his presence is his countenance. Lift that on you and give you peace. There, there's that idea of the peace of God, the presence of God, the, the favor of God, the, the promise and eternality and the life-giving power of God represented in the light that's given from the lampstand. All right. Within the holy place, there's one more piece of furniture. The altar of the incense. 25. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, and its breadth was a cubit. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it, and he made two rings of gold on it, under its molding and on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. So all of this being attributed to Bezalel, he's not only making woodwork, metalwork, now he's a perfumer. Right? Even the poles are overlaid with gold. Yeah, yeah. well, except for out when we get outside. We'll talk about that in a minute, but yes, it's overlaid with something. The outside's with bronze. So, uh, all right, we have the altar of incense. Again, a repetition of chapter 30, 1 through 5. 
Incidentally, do you remember that this was out of order when we went through this before? The altar of incense was in chapter 30. The other stuff was in 25, 26. It was, it was thought to be, well, this was added or whatever. Here, uh, we see that it's, it's right in order of where it should be. It's in the holy place where it should be um, as they constructed it. It's included in the middle of the account in the holy place. In fact, the altar was to stand in front of the veil at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. So you have the, 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 the table, the lampstand, and then this altar of incense in front of the veil leading into where the ark is. Three pieces of furniture, larger room, a lot of empty space, but this is what you see when you walk in. Table, lamp, incense. Um, we know that uh, from chapter 31 through 5 that thy priest will burn incense on this altar every morning when he trims the lamps, it says, uh, in the holy place, and every evening when he lights the lamps. So there's always light. There's always light. It's always being tended to. Oil is being added constantly. It does not go out. And yet this incense is also being uh, lit whenever this happens. The fragrance made for this altar was to be according to the specific formula given by God. And remember, it wasn't to be used by the perfumers outside in the common area in the marketplace. This formula was totally for the temple. It was never, or tabernacle, it was never to be used just for common use. It was a specific formula given by God for the altar of incense. This altar of incense was the most holy object in the holy place. We saw that in chapter 30. Do you remember what the altar of incense represented? The prayers, yes, but the prayers of the saints, right? Uh, there was some indication of that when we, when we saw uh, in Psalm 141. I call on you, O Yahweh, hasten to me, listen to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting of my palms as the evening offering. There is uh, a, a, um, a, a recognition that the prayers people are before him, right before they enter into the Holy of Holies. Yeah? So, I'm, I'm just looking at a picture here. There are four horns. Mm-hmm. We know that horns represent kingdoms. Power, yeah. Power, mm-hmm. okay. I'm just reading... Daniel and other places and other other imagery that's used. Oh, that's right. That's right. Of that. Yeah. I was reading Daniel. Um, does that, how does that play into the structure? These, these horns? It's, it's a... It's a... It's a well... It's a place where, when there is atonement being made, um, there, there is some indication that there's blood put on those horns. But uh, especially when it's purified, the furniture gets purified, that's where they place the blood. Um, there, but really, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a symbol of, of power, of, uh, of authority, of um, you know, th- that kind of idea. A horn generally represents that. But it's the design. Ultimately, it's, it's the type of design that they had for the culture, for those kinds of things, yeah. I was just going to say, what struck me about all of this is kind of how God condescends mm-hmm. to, to relate to people. Mm-hmm. And here you see he condescends even, even using our senses, even using right. vision, the light, mm-hmm. the taste of the bread, mm-hmm. the smell the of smell the incense. incense. Yeah. Just to, just to engage our senses yeah. in who he is because he knows we're... But dust. We're, we're, we're human. Yeah, we're very good. Finite. We, very good. We don't get it. Very good. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, piggybacking off of what Jasper said, when Christ, uh, when they were making fun of Christ and they, they had the crown of thorns and they shoved that down on his head, you think of thorns as the, the altar. Christ is our altar, our ultimate atoning sacrifice. They shoved small horns and a bunch of them of the world down on his head. So it's kind of like this nasty juxta- juxtaposition mm. of what the world does to Christ. Yeah, maybe. He, he took it. Maybe. Also, you could grab the horns of justification. But that was that's not on this altar. That's on well, the that's on, on the altar outside. Yeah. That we're about to get to. Are they not the same? No, they're different. It's different altars. I know they're different altars, but the horns do they not serve the same purpose? No, they don't because only the the only the altar the bronze altar could you grab one for for uh, asylum. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I think uh, we'll see when we get to chapter 40 that the, 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 there was a separate incense that was burned, probably the same formula of fragrance, but it was burned when they laid out the bread, kind of as a, a thing. So that was that specific to the table. This is generally when they're trimming the lamp and, and doing so different functions, but, but I think it's the same smell. Um, um, yes, no. Penzi spices, anyway. All right, the outer court... The outer court. Look at chapter 38. He made the altar of incense. Oh, that's not right. Uh, Chapter 38. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the firepans. And he made all the, its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze, under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the side of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. What's this made of? And why bronze? It's not as precious. It's still a precious metal, not as precious. You're right. So we're working from the inside out, the most precious things, to the lesser precious thing. The outside, the more common, the more accessible is bronze. We're moving from the outer court uh, to the outer court from, and, and the construction of the articles to be placed here in the outer court. And it starts with the bronze altar. And, and although there are some changes here, it's essentially a repetition of what we saw in chapter thir- uh, 27. Here the altar is called an altar of burnt offering. There's just called the bronze altar or whatever. Here it's called the altar of burnt offering. Other translations would say the whole burnt offering. And this is probably to distinguish it from the altar of incense. Uh, that was just discussed. So you see a distinction between the two. This also is a holy object, but it was more visible to the people, right? I mean, when they come into the outer court, they're seeing the bronze altar. Everything else is hidden behind veils. They're seeing this. Um, Being furthest away from the Holy of Holies, it's covered in bronze rather than gold, right? 
and it's being used for sacrifices uh, daily. Yes? Is bronze also not more durable and harder metal? To maybe yeah. to under... Metal Smith says yes. <laughs> Go with that. Notice the amount of trust just placed in someone who spoke with authority on whether or not that metal was more durable. That, my friends, is presupposition right there. It's an assumption of authority. All right, so you have this bronze altar. People walk in uh, and they see this. It's less valuable. It's maybe more durable. Uh, it has uh, a, a, a more accessible... Um, demeanor to than the other articles of furniture. And then he ends with this on 38.8. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. What in the world is going on there? Who are the ministering women who minister at the tent of meeting? We're talking about the construction of the tent of meeting, so does he mean the tabernacle or does he mean something else? Was there another tent? The tent that Moses... Raised. That's what some people think this is referring to. What these women are doing, nobody knows. But they're what? <laughs> Cleaning something. What do they give for this for this basin, this laver, this uh, pensies thing? Or not pensies. What am I thinking of? The pensive thing. The, the, you got me thinking the spices. Um, this laver of wash basin that's out there. What is it made of? Mirrors. Think of the irony there. Something used, polished bronze, so that it reflects the, 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 the image in front of it, polished bronze, used for uh, vanity, we could say, made into an article for humble washing. I need cleansing. It's transformed into something that's for, for humility. For a true way to see yourself. For a true way to see yourself. Very good. Very, you know, that's pretty poetic, really. That's what that is. Okay, good. You have, again, it's, it's, a, it's a summary here of chapter 30, verses 17 through 21, and we, and we see that you know, only those who are ritually clean may approach God through the tabernacle and lead its service. The outer court, verses 9 through 20, again a repeat of 27, uh, 9 through 19, with some variation, but nothing that really changes the meaning of the passage. We'll read it real quickly. And he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twined linen, 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side, there were hangings of 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars, their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits, their 10 pillars and their 10 bases. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And the front of the east, 50 cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All of the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen. And the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It was twenty cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number, 
Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. What are the metals used for the bases? All the, all the connections. You have silver and bronze. Again, it's further away from the Holy of Holies. So using a, they're using a, a less valuable metal. Um, who's here in the outer court? Who comes here? The general population. General, priests, high priests. Is that the way it worked? There's a division. There's a separateness here. What do they see when they come in? Why are there curtains there anyway? Nobody can go in the tent. Why are there curtains there for this outer court? What's the point of that? And, and close from yes, from everything else, there are curtains right there. You walk in. What do you see immediately? <coughs> the altar and what else? The laver and the tent. So you're seeing the entrance that you can't go in. You see the two articles of furniture that you have access to visually, at least, unless you're running for asylum and you grab on the horn of the altar. The focus is there. Everything else is shut out. The focus is on the altar and this wash basin. There's a separateness, a focus. The curtain barrier here keeps distractions to a minimum as all focus of the common people is on what's going on on the altar. Sacrifices are being made. Why? Because I'm a sinner in need of atonement. Uh, And the washing of the priests. They can't do this unless they're clean. God, I hope they did it right. Are they going to be dragging this guy out of here? Right? Uh, Obedience. And cleanliness are what they're seeing. That's their focus. That's what they see the priests doing. Obedience and cleanliness. Again, obviously there's much more we could say about each of these elements in the tabernacle. We went through each of them in depth. But reviewing uh, the way it's laid out here got me thinking. Sometimes it does that. Sometimes I can do that. They were all probably constructed at the same time, but Moses chose this order to lay them out. The ark, table, the lamp, the incense, the bronze altar, the laver, and the outer court. Why wouldn't he do that in reverse? Wouldn't that make more sense? Would it make more sense to say, okay, let's do this from the perspective of the people coming in and then hone it down into the one guy that gets to go in? Wouldn't that make more sense as a reader? Wouldn't you be more invited? Oh, I get to see this. I'm familiar with this. Okay, we got this. It's not about you. What he does, he starts with what makes the tabernacle a tabernacle and not just a tent. He starts with a focal point of what makes the nation a nation, which is the throne of mercy. Right? Without that throne, they'd have all been destroyed by now. They already had the golden calf incident, the cash cow thing. They could have been wiped out. Without this throne of mercy, they're gone. The distinctive factor here is that God is gracious and has provided a way of atonement for them. His very feet rest upon, stands upon, His mercy for the people that He's showing and starting here in the Holy of Holies is mercy. The mercy of His presence is there. And so you work out, what's next? Well, in His presence, there's provision. 
He provides for His people completely, all of them. He provides for His people. They are to eat of Him. They are to feast on Him. They are to be satisfied in Him. Uh, they are to uh, eat bread daily. <laughs> you know, they're, they're de- what is showing the bread is the light, the lamp, pure gold. There's nothing common about this lamp. It illuminates the bread that they see. They don't see the bread without the light, right? They may smell it, get a whiff of it. They see it provision in the light. And then because you have the presence of provision, you have the pre- in His presence um, illumination, they have access to Him in the presence of prayer. The, all of this is working together. What makes the tabernacle a tabernacle is God's provision, God's illumination, and the prayers of His people. Depending on Him. And He accepts it because of His mercy. The foundation of the whole thing. It is here that a nation is born. It is here that God's provision is renewed, constant, served on a table, His bread of the presence. With His mercy is the light of His presence, illuminating the bread eternally. It's a picture of a tree that is life-giving and pointing to the bread. With mercy is the acceptance of the prayers of His people. He hears them. He didn't have to. Probably shouldn't have if we were to seek fairness. But in mercy, He hears them. With mercy is the acceptance of the prayers of His people. And the picture moves out again. Because of His mercy, because of His provision, because of Him illuminating the bread, the provision, because of the prayers of His people, it moves out. And what are... What is everyone else to see? They're to see obedience. An altar is erected. A sacrifice is made. And they do this in trusting that what is on the altar is enough to atone for their sin. And there's repentance there. Twice a day, there's repentance there. And the people in the general public see a community of priests living out repentance on behalf of the people. But they can't do it without also washing, seeking to be clean before a holy God. This is what the people see. Obedience and cleanliness, repentance, faith, trust in what has been done on the altar is enough, and a constant washing, a constant cleansing. What do you see? What is the tabernacle, what is the temple being built now? What makes the church distinct from any other Rotary Club organization? Uh, A community of people with like-mindedness who just want to do nice things. It's founded on the mercy of God. (laughs) It starts there. And in His mercy, He provides the presence of His bread daily. And you can't see it unless the Holy Spirit illuminates that presence in His bread. I don't get this. This is words on a page unless the lamp is showing. And the lamp is pure gold. 
It's a spirit. Precious, residing in us, illuminating his word. That's a clear picture to me. What else is there? Because of what he's done in Christ, the mercy he's given us in Christ, because he's revealed himself in his word, because he's called you and illuminated that word in his, by his spirit, he accepts your prayer. He hears you. We have boldness and access through our faith in Him with confidence that He hears it. What makes the church distinct? Because of those things, the mercy, the provision, the lamp, the illumination of His Word, the prayers of His people, He's called us to do something very visible to the outside world, to live lives of repentance and trust that He's enough sacrificing what's valuable to us many times, every time, to show that He's enough. And in doing that, trusting outwardly, Jesus is enough, we're also striving to wash, to be clean. He's made us clean, and we continue to show it visibly before a watching world. Why do we say that? Because you're a holy nation a royal priesthood called out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim before an open world to have them focus in on the beauty, the the worth, the sufficiency of Jesus as we display it in living out works that he prepared before us before the foundation of the world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should live in the outer court, holy, washing, blameless, trusting the altar. Right? That's the picture that... There are a lot of ways you can do this. There are a lot of ways you can look at this. That's the thing that stuck, struck me, and it may strike you with some other things, and, and, and love to hear them. But it, it starts with who is God, what has He done in Christ, and then the blessings He provides for us in His presence, provision, eternal promise, and the prayers of the saints. And then we live it out before a watching world. All right. Any any questions, comments? When Philip talks about God condescending hmm. to us, uh, I see this as a remarkable. Yeah. Condescending yeah. that he has done, not only to, to write it down for us, but to build it into the things going on because we're so dense. Mm-hmm. It sinks in different different ways, and there's a lot of places sure. to pick it up and, sure. and start putting together the pattern, the consistent pattern of God. Yeah, and this language is all through the Bible, not just not just the Old Testament. But all through the New Testament, the same kind of idea is just, it permeates like incense all over the pages of, of the New Testament. The apostles pulled from this. This is who you are in Jesus. This is what he's done. The same kind of temple, furniture, separateness language is, is all there. Anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Or 
David talks about God um, lifting up the horn of salvation mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that a place that's uh, where you pray, or mm-hmm. makes you think of prayer and dependence on God, is also decorated with symbols of strength. Yeah. So that your strength is in is in your weakness, in your dependence. Very good. Your strength is in your weakness. Um, also a theme gone to again and again in, in Scripture. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, you were talking about the acacia wood is common mm-hmm. and it's covered with something uncommon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when they sanctified all of this stuff or purified it, they sacrificed the lambs mm-hmm. and put their blood on mm-hmm. everything. That's right. The lamb is common. Uh-huh. Uh, kind of a thought I had that kind of a the picture is not perfect here mm-hmm. and it kind of points to we need the lamb not a lamb oh good we need Jesus's blood mm-hmm. is uncommon not just any not just any blood will do yeah very good very good hmm. you certainly can we have we have two minutes. It's just interesting how they have to, they all have to wear white and it all has to become consistently clean. Mm-hmm. And they have to be clean. But bronze is very easy to stain. Mm-hmm. It's something you have to constantly polish and polish and polish to mm-hmm. keep it looking beautiful. Mm-hmm. So you got all the blood and the, the dirt and the everything on top of it. It's mm-hmm. just constantly filthy and it constantly has to be washed. Mm-hmm. And when you're wearing white and you're slaughtering goats and lambs and putting them on the altar, you're there's blood and, and and dirt and it's just constant filth <coughs> and it's just such an amazing picture because that's what they see. You know, God is stainless and perfect and holy and pure and then everything from that outside that we get to look at is just filth, constant filth. Mm-hmm. And it's like look at our sin, look at what it does to us mm-hmm. and what God has called us to be and how he purifies us and you know, it's just Isn't that the picture of the cross? Absolutely. You look at the cross and you think, he's not a man. How could a man look like that after what has been done to him? It's completely marred. Visibly, it's our sin on him and what it's done. And the difference between the, the articles of the bronze altar and, and the labor that you see stained, and the difference in the clothes the priest wore and Christ on the cross is that <clears throat> he makes the unclean clean. Mm-hmm. We don't clean him. Mm-hmm. He raises himself to glorify, to be glorified, pure, holy, undefiled, as he, um, and, and then turns around and touches us, washes our feet, mm-hmm. cleans us. That's a beautiful picture. asylum. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of the, the woman with the issue of blood. Mm. Like if, if she had touched a priest, mm-hmm. he would have been considered unholy. 
he would have been considered unclean because she had that issue of blood. Mm-hmm. But she touched Jesus, and so, like you said, he he didn't become unclean mm-hmm. because he was touched by somebody who was unclean. Right. Rather, he made her clean. Right. And just nobody had to scrub him. Right. Yeah. Likewise, we can go out and touch and touch the lives of people mm-hmm. who aren't. And point them to the one who can make them clean. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. I'm just saying, um, same say idea. Our salvation um, doesn't rest in our faithfulness to Him. Mm-hmm. Not that you know we go on saying that grace would have done, but um, our our salvation lies in His strength and His righteousness, mm-hmm. and there's nothing we can do to stop that. Right. And therefore, it's always ours, and then we can approach the throne of grace. Yeah. Like we can't affect who Christ is, but who we are is up, is wrapped up in Him mm-hmm. because of what He's done. Our whole identity is His. Right. And so. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, we could probably go for hours. Um, it's, it's amazing to me, the Old Testament, the gift that we have of this record, um, and the beauty that we see of Jesus in it, the picture here. But let's pray. Thank you, Father, once again for hearing our prayers. Because of your mercy, because of the provision of your word, first in Christ and then recorded for us in scripture, that is your condescension, your reaching down to us to reveal yourself, illuminated by your spirit, may our prayers be sweet smelling to you that come from a heart that is dependent wholly upon you in weakness. We have nothing to offer here. We come as beggars, thankful for what you provided for us in Jesus. Thankful that you took beggars and made us priests to serve in this great temple that you are building. The cornerstone is Christ. Your people are its stones. Father, in that, would you equip us and move us to live lives displaying our dependence upon the worth and sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ, that his death is enough, that we don't have to keep working to find our approval in you, uh, for you or before you, but that we work because we want to honor you. We have hearts that are renewed by your Spirit that want to reflect Jesus, not ourselves. That we strive for holiness, the washing of your Word, because we want to reflect Jesus, not ourselves. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for the blessings that we have in Christ. Thank you for this group and this church. I pray that you continue to grow them into the image of Jesus, shaping them through the struggles that they're going through to be polished, clean, rightly reflecting their master. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.